Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first episode of Talking Leadership. I'm Dan Mulraney. We have a great show for you tonight as we're going to get to meet our first guest, author and leadership guru, Paul Hylensky. Really looking forward to my conversation with Paul because I know he's going to provide some great insight on leadership as we discuss his first book, Culture Change Through Environment Change. But first, let me give you an idea of how and when this podcast will be presented. On the second Monday of each month, we're going to drop a new episode with a new guest and a new topic for discussion. I'm going to bring a new topic on leadership to discuss at the opening of each session before being joined by our guest for their interview. Each guest will bring a unique perspective from their particular background, whether they're an author, like today's guest, or a business owner, elected official, president of an organization, or the CEO of a company. We have some great guests lined up, and I can't wait for you to hear from them. I'm on my fourth career now, which has become my true passion, reading, writing, teaching, and talking about leadership. I've had some great access to some of the most amazing leadership training available over the course of three careers and four decades in the workforce. I never miss a chance to attend a leadership class. I've learned a lot about life and leadership through these courses, but sometimes the most valuable lessons are the ones you live through, good and bad. We know we can learn a lot from a good leader, but maybe just as much from a poor leader. I've done both. You just have to distinguish between the two. And that brings me to our topic for today, self-awareness. The success of our organizations can rise and fall based on the leader at the top. The best leaders are the ones that are self-aware, the ones that understand their emotions and the emotions of others. They're the ones that know that their actions, their comments, their decisions have a profound impact on the members of their team. The best leaders understand and acknowledge their weaknesses. They apologize when necessary and show humility. The best leaders are self-aware enough and humble enough to seek input from those lower in the hierarchy. They know that they don't have to be the smartest person in the room. The best leaders make sure that those affected by a decision have some say in that decision. Everyone wants to feel valued. They want to feel appreciated and heard. It creates buy-in from the team. It increases morale and strengthens team unity. This isn't a Herculean effort. It's just a small tweak in how we view ourselves. Spend some time in self-reflection. Understand yourself better. And then you'll be able to better understand those around you. It's something that we can work on and practice each day. We can always find ways to improve. We're always a work in progress. Okay. So it's time to welcome our guest, author, pilot, aerospace operations leader, human factors specialist, former United States Marine, and author of three books, Culture Change Through Environment Change, Coaching for Growth, Error-Proofing Humans in both Spanish and English. Please welcome Paul Hylensky. Paul, thank you for your service and for the great work you've been doing in the area of leadership and welcome to our show. Hi, Dan. Really excited to be here with you. Thanks. It's great. Uh, this sounds like the books are doing really well. Yeah. Yeah. It's been, uh, they've actually been taking off, and I'm really glad, you know, it's uh, the message is spreading. So, really excited. 
Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. If you want to tell the folks listening uh, where they might be able to get those books, I know I got all, all three of mine through Amazon. Yep. So are on sale through Amazon, also Barnes and Noble. Uh, I'll be doing a couple book signings at Bar- Barnes and Noble in the local Maryland area. And then, uh, you know, uh, major books, retailers, books a million, you know, pretty much anywhere you can get a book. Uh, Walmart.com now has my books. So. Wow. Awesome. Congratulations. That's really, that's, that's really great. Great success to you. I wish you all the best with those books. Um, Glad to have my copies. So um, I want, I want to focus really today uh, on on your first book, Culture Change Through Environment Change. Um, you know, that's that I, I finished that book uh, last week sometime. And uh, there's really a lot of good stuff in that book uh, to talk about. I mean, we, there, so many things are covered uh, it, it, about leadership and, and, you know, soup to nuts. And, and I love it. I, you know, I, I took so many notes about it and just want to touch on, on some of that today. That sounds um, great. Good. So let's, um, I know that, uh, you know, you start in the beginning with, you know, I know you talk about your dad in that book and the impact of of leadership, uh, you know, and how it affected your dad, kind of old school leadership things that have impacted not only him, yeah. but potentially the family. Yep. And And it really did start with my dad, the whole, you know, me being a leader. So my dad was a, uh, an hourly worker, so a production worker at a large aerospace company. It's fitting that now I'm a business leader at a large aerospace company. So it's kind of fitting. But, you know, my dad, you know, lived under the 1980s leadership style. And leaders back then, you know, they assumed that because people stayed that they were happy, but what they didn't realize was they stayed because of the pensions. So, you know, leadership got worse and worse and worse. And when people didn't leave, leaders just assumed, oh, they're okay with what's going on. The people are fine. So what was really happening was the people were more and more disengaged, but they had a pension, so they stayed. So, one of the worst practices in aerospace, uh, but it was frequent layoffs. And, you know, as a young child, I remember the pressure and the stress that that put my family under. And I thought to myself, there's got to be a better way. And, you know, pretty much everything about that style of leadership, what leaders didn't realize was it wasn't just impacting the people at work. They were taking this frustration and anger back home to their families. And that's why marital rates in production facilities are lower than in normal office jobs. This, you know, I think Harvard Review, uh, Harvard Business Review said it best, but they did a study and it said that a, a person's frontline leader is more correlative to their health than their own primary care physician. And when leaders start to realize, like, you impact their lives for 40 hours a week. The majority of their waking time is spent with you. You can either destroy them or you can build them. It's up to us as leaders. So that start, it started with my dad because I said, if I ever got a chance to do it, I would do it better. Because I don't want people to bring home the frustration and anger like he had to. And he was a great man. You know, and and uh, 
it gave me a lot of opportunities to where now I was in that role and I was the business leader able to change hundreds of people's lives. Now I'm trying to change way more through spreading the message. Yeah, and, and it's a great message. And, and I think, you know, the talk about your, your dad is, you, you know, you always hear people say, or you hear the old adage, you know, people don't leave organizations or jobs, you know, they, they leave poor management, they leave poor leadership. Um, but but I, I guess maybe that wasn't the case in that time. You know, if, if you're if you're invested in an organization and you reach a certain salary level or or, you know, you're function is there you know sometimes it's hard to it's hard to get out of there i think that kind of spurred the degradation of leadership because all these companies that were offering a pension which was the majority of the manufacturing companies when people weren't leaving they they took that as complicit acceptance of the poor leadership so then what they did was what they started realizing where people were responding with less and less engagement so then these businesses tightened and tightened the belt and their span of control, which then drew the people to be less and less engaged. So what you had was people who pretty much quit in place that they were just waiting till they got their pension. And they didn't leave because they knew they had a long-term play, but there are no pensions now, very few. And the, the modern day workforce will not stay if the the culture is toxic. And I believe what you said is absolutely true more than ever now. People don't leave bad companies, they leave bad leaders, you know, and, and that's where we really have to change. Yeah, agreed. And now, you know, you you see this term quite a bit these days where where they talk about quiet quitting, you know, mm -hmm. like like the folks in, in those manufacturing organizations, you know, that the, the leadership was letting them down. They you know, they were struggling, but they knew they needed to stay, but they're, they're less engaged. They're less productive. The morale is down. It, it, it really impacts the entire organization. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so as you, you know, you started to move on through your life, you, you ended up as, as a United States Marine. Um, and, you know, the impact of leadership is, is felt there right good and bad um so I, i'm interested to hear some of your experiences i know you talk about it in your book uh culture yeah. change through environment change but uh, uh I, i'd like to hear some of your thoughts on your experiences yeah, that's, there. that's so my time in the marine corps i was uh I, I was a young kid had no clue about life when i joined the marine corps and oh boy did i get a wake-up call right but so in the Marine Corps, it was one thing that, that, you know, you were there with your team and you were there with your family. And as I rose through the ranks in the Marine Corps, what I realized was you didn't just lead people during work times. You were responsible. They were your Marines and your Marines were 100% your Marines, which meant when they got Dear John letters, you had to worry about bringing them back, right? And you, when they were depressed or when they were homesick, you had to worry about being there for them. You had to be the leader of that 100% person. It wasn't just the time you were working or on a mission. It was 100% leadership. So I took that to my business life. 
And I was the guy who cared about people more than anyone, you know, all these other leaders were like, what do you care? Do your 40 and leave. And I was like, no, these people, they're people, right? And, and the military, so this was the biggest thing for me. As leaders, the military gives people medals who sacrifice themselves for other people. In business, they give you bonuses and raises for sacrificing everyone else for yourself. And I thought to myself, what a skewed dynamic, right? And I didn't adhere to that. And I wouldn't adhere to that. And that was one of the things that got me a lot of credibility early on in my leadership journey. And I was subject to probably one of the worst leaders that I ever had. Um, And, you know, it changed me. It changed me. And people always say you learn more from people that teach you the bad way to do it or the wrong way to do it. And I think there's some truth to that, right? Because we've all had leaders to where we were like, nah, that's just not right. You know, And, and what it does, it's like hooking up a bag of cortisol, the stress hormone, and just IV dripping people all day long. And what happens is you get anxious, you don't want to go to work. You know, it it literally turns your mind off. And I can remember multiple times where I just was like, yep, after a morning encounter, I was like, yeah, I'm done for the day. I'm going to be here, but I'm done for the day. Right. And and I thought to myself, there's got to be a better way. And there was. and, And one of the leaders that propelled me along and he saw he saw what I had potential where no one else did in the company. And he pushed me. And then he taught me a better way to do it. And instead of fear, he taught me analytics. He taught me cognitive psychology, He taught me psychological safety. And he transformed my leadership because he made me better. And when I failed, he normalized mistakes. I can, na- I can remember the day, the first like coaching session, he said, it's okay to fail. And I thought, nope, I'm a Marine. I do not fail. I was like, mission accomplishment. And he said, no, it's okay to fail because you're going to learn. And he said, just let everyone fail. Let them fail so they can learn. And he was talking about my team that worked for me. And I thought, no, I have to be the leader that never lets them fail. So I got to jump in and do it. And what I found when I listened to him and, and learned from him, Everyone learned more because they failed. They saw me there to back them up. And then they felt more empowered to go learn and get better. And I thought, yeah. wow. And it's yeah. just it's amazing, right? and it sent me on this journey of I'm going to make the world better by spreading this message. And I, I darn sure wanted to make the company better. So I not only made the company better, but now I'm trying to change the whole world. Yeah, agreed. I mean, there's 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 so many great things in what you just said. Um, you know, showing empathy towards you, towards your, your team, you know, they know when you care, they know when you're faking it, you know, when you genuinely care, when you're invested in them, they feel that and they know that. And, and there's, there's no faking that, you know, people are bright, they get it. And then, you know, uh, I teach a course called emotional intelligence and, and, and one of, you know, one of the five Daniel Goleman aspects of emotional intelligence is, is is showing empathy towards others. And they know that and they feel it, especially when you say, you know, allow them to make mistakes. 
what's the point of giving people tools and the autonomy to, you know, to work alone and giving them the tools to succeed and then telling them, but don't screw this up, you know, don't make a mistake. And it's, you know, it's just counterproductive to say it's okay. It's okay if you make mistakes. We, we expect that and we'll just learn from it and grow. Yep, absolutely. Change yeah. is everything. It sure does. It sure does. And, you know, um, there's a, um, Robert Iger, who's currently the CEO of Disney, but he, he was the CEO of Disney, then he wasn't, and now he is again. And he wrote a great book called uh, The Ride of a Lifetime. Um, and and one of he says one of his biggest lessons uh, being CEO of Disney was giving himself permission to fail. Um, there's really, you know, there's really something to be said for that. Uh, so uh, somewhere along that way, uh, Paul, you you say you met you met um, the person that was was the most transformational leader you've ever met. Yep. Tell us a little bit about that. So I was in one department and then I got transferred to another department to try to improve uh, the productivity. So this was right after I was working for somebody who definitely had some leadership gaps as far as the way that they uh, treated people. But, you know, my first interactions were when we talked defects, there were no emotions. It was just very analytical. Like I said, this was the gentleman who I, I had said, told me to fail, said, it's okay to fail. And, uh, you know, he used to have a, uh, you used to have like, you know, a little placard above the door, keep the drama at the door. And he would talk about, you know, just tell me the truth, no matter what it is, I can take any answer, but I need the truth. Right. And that changed me because then when I told him the truth and he didn't negatively react and it was, okay, what do you need to fix this? How are we going to tackle this together? And I felt so much different because before, if I would have said any kind of bad news, I would have been berated or I would have, you know, yeah. I would have had to hear it for days upon days and here this, this manager is, and he's no, here's how we're going to fix it together. And it helps that like, he's one of the smartest people at the company. So it's very easy to like, he's technically probably the, the, the most technical person that I know. But he and he has all the ability to be a poor leader. Like you can have all that technical ability and be a poor leader, and still people will follow you because you have that. But he doesn't. He brings so much else to the table. And I thought I want to be him, but I want to be better. So I want to I want to study harder. So that's what got me into the research about how do I reshape, you know, this environment and change this environment. And that got me into Kurt Lewin which, you know, he talks about environment. He talks about how to reshape behavior. And I thought, okay. And then I started getting into what psychological safety and a lot of the topics that I review in the book, it spurred me onto that, but only because I felt safe enough to try something. And, you know, through those failures, what he taught me was even if I try this and fail, I'll be okay. Cause I'll learn what not to do. And it gave me a sense of security because I was like, okay, the worst that would happen is it doesn't work and then I'll pivot. And I've taken that through my career now. I try things. If it doesn't work, I pivot. 
I try things, I pivot. I try things, I pivot. And what happens is one of those things, all of a sudden it's like the light bulb going on and it works. And then we're like, okay. And now we got continuous improvement, but he spurred that for me and it changed me. And, and he's the gentleman I talk about in the book. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that because um, some, you know, and, and I talked about this before, before you got on uh, today was, was leaders that, you know, for some reason they're struggling and, and they don't really know it. I don't think there's any ill intent, you know, malicious intent there. They just, they don't realize that what they're doing isn't, isn't working. Um, and, and, and there's probably a bunch of reasons for that. Um, you know, maybe as a senior person, they don't, you know, they don't want to ask for feedback. You know, I, I must know what I'm doing. Look at my title. You know, I, I have it all together. Um, but for some reason, they're just not getting it. And, and, and I think a big part of that is, is feedback. And, and I love the way in your book, you talk about getting feedback, but you, you talk about getting it uh, through survey. So, so tell us a little bit about your thoughts on that. So I think, you know, for me, I wanted to create an environment of psychological safety. So if you just go out and I say, hey, Dan, what do you think of me? How am I doing? If you don't feel safe with me, you're going to say you're doing good. So I go, I walk away and I think, wow, I'm doing good. Dan says I'm doing good. And from that, now I'm like, okay, that's probably the part of the problem with the current leaders. Even the leaders that do ask for feedback, they're asking and it's unsafe for the people to tell them. So they just tell them what they want to hear. So I did a lot of research on how to crack that code. I wanted raw, unfiltered feedback because through that, even though it might be uncomfortable, through that at least I could change and I could try to see. And so what I did was I did a lot of uh, research on uh, the law of diffusion of innovations, which is basically a standard distribution that every population uh, you know, follows, right? And it's like a standard bell curve. So then I implemented a anonymous survey. So you take it with a QR code, and it was a survey and I did multiple surveys. I did culture surveys and also leadership 360 surveys. Now in the surveys, and I talk about it in the book, it's important to have primer questions to determine the validity of the survey. So most people don't realize that you could get skewed answers in a survey unless you follow that natural distribution of the law of diffusion. So some questions that could be used for a primer question, um, the ones that I use was, does Paul care about safety? Of course I do. Everyone in the world cares about safety if you're in manufacturing. So what I would find from that is what my distribution of answers would be, because typically they will follow that standard distribution. Now, if I'm all negatively skewed, now I know for my survey that the rest of the survey is probably going to be negatively skewed. Still workable, but I have to realize that I have a bias to it. Um, so I, again, another question is, does Paul care about quality? Of course I do. I'm the manufacturing leader, right? But I wanted to see how skewed the surveys were. And every single time I took a survey, it followed the natural 
progression, followed that natural distribution. So I thought, okay, now I've got my primer questions. Now I know that the survey isn't biased in one way or the other. So all the results are valid. So some questions, you know, could be, you know, about what leadership style I had, right? And I asked and I said, is it auto, you know, authoritative, empathetic, dem democratic, or passive? Passive, I put in there to actually test the laggards. So the, lag the last 16% of every population of group of people are your naysayers, and they call them the laggards. They're the people that say they hate the world just because they hate the world. They're the hardest to get online with anything. So when you do these surveys, you have to test if the laggards are there. And any more than a 16% uh, negative answer on any of these survey questions shows a negative bias to the question. So you that says that as a leader, you have to react to that question. So if anything's more than negative 16%, you have to react to it because now you've gotten more people than the standard laggards. They say the laggards are the, six, the bottom 16% or far right 16% in any population, right? On a distribution chart. So, so and I did the, I, I would test for culture. Then I would go back and test for leadership. I'd do a leadership 360. And boy, it was hard. It was hard because you get some real frank answers in these things. And it's an anonymous survey and people can write anything they want, right? And you got to be ready for that as a leader. But out of that, 70% of the survey, 80% of the survey was valid to where I could see, you know what? I could see their point. And then here is the magic. So after I did the survey, I would pull all the leaders together and I would review the survey and we would come up with an action plan. We'd say, okay, these answers, we got negative responses. We want to go put an action plan together. And then I took a television screen around to hundreds upon hundreds of workers and had little meetings where they were 40 and 50 at a time, 40 and 50 people at a time. And I reviewed the answers, good, bad, ugly, so that they could see 100% transparency. And I reviewed the action plan and told them to keep me accountable. And I saw every single survey I did, I got about a 20 to 30% increase in the population that took it. All while I was actually shortening the duration that the survey was open. So the first survey stayed open for three weeks. The last survey that I did, I got literally went from 20% of the population to 86% of the population in those surveys, right? And this was over a, a year and a half thing. And I, the first one I left open for three weeks. The last one I left open for 48 hours. So I had people jumping to try to take the survey because they knew I'd do something with it. No, I mean, there, there, there's something to be said for that. Um, I, I just, you know, to me, and and I and I think you experienced this when when people you say you know people are free to say whatever they want in the survey it's anonymous <laughs> you have to show a certain ability as the leader to say okay okay yep. I got you and the, wh whatever that criticism you know as some of it may be wonderful of course uh, but but some of it's going to be criticism right and so we have to be able to show our ability to say I accept that yep. I, I hear you. Um, 
you know, maybe I didn't see myself like like that, but I'll consider it and 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 I'll I'll own that if I need to, right? I, I mean, there's a certain degree of that that and needs I, to be done. I think too that most people feel that, and and you kind of touched on it in one of your things, where most people are leaders, they almost assume like they're infallible, and leaders are fallible. We don't see things. We don't see everything, right? And and I think once you realize that you're fallible and that you you know we can always keep growing and getting better, and then it, what our people think of us matter. It matters so much, and we have to realize that. And and you know I got some I got some amazing responses in these surveys that made me feel like you know what I'm doing awesome. And then I got some some responses from people that maybe I didn't have so good interaction with. And I thought I could tell the people that I wasn't talking to. You know, I even tested the system from we have hourly and salary. So like the engineers and then the production workers, I tested the two groups independently to see how each of them thought of me. And the salary people thought rated me way higher on vision and strategy because they saw it every day. I wasn't yeah. talking that with the, the production workers, right? The production workers saw me more as authoritative. I would walk on the floor. I might not talk to them. I would, you know, I would talk to their manager and tell them what to do or ask them about productivity. I wasn't I wasn't viewed the same way. I'm the same guy. I thought I'm acting the same way, but I wasn't viewed the same way. So I had to cultivate the message for the different groups, which I would have never known if it wasn't for those surveys. Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, that's great. I think that, you know, people that don't have access to the leader feel, feel differently, you yeah. know, than, than those that do. And, 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 and it sounds like your organization is, very very large and it's probably hard to to get to all these folks but yep. um um but showing genuine you know empathy and concern and ability to listen man i talk i talk about listening all the time that we're basically pretty bad at listening i mean you know and and people you know because you're distracted you got you got a hundred things you got to think about you know, all the emails you got and the meetings you have and what you got to do in the next week. And when people, people know when you're not listening, uh, they really do. And, and, and so to, to be present, to, to ask questions, to listen, to have empathy, to bring that message to as many people as you can, I'm sure that has quite an impact uh, on the, on the surveys as you bring them forth. Yeah, that's, that's really good stuff. I, I, you know, I think it's important to note that uh, if you're going to get your feedback through a survey, you really should have the understanding that you do, Paul, about, about how that survey needs to look and be presented, right? Yep. The design of it, the, the questions. You, you know, I talk about designing a, an effective survey. But like I said, the primer questions, you want to make sure that there isn't bias in the survey. Um, and then, you know, you can use subsequent surveys. If you didn't understand an answer to one of the questions or you got a little fuzzy feedback or something that wasn't what you thought, then I would use the other follow-up surveys to really hone into that question. So we asked a question with, you know, what we could do better. 
And the number one answer was training. The number two answer was accountability. Well, I thought, wow, we're doing great on accountability and training. I'd never heard anybody say anything. So then I, in the next survey, I asked, what do you want to see in training? What level of accountability would you like to see, right? And I, and I started pointing the questions to those answers that I, I got the answer, but I don't really know what to do. And then I did sensing sessions where once I had made people feel comfortable after a few surveys, I was able to actually do group where I'd pull five, 10 people in, we'd buy lunch and I'd say, I'd show the question and say, what do you guys think about this? Like, what, what did you answer? Uh, you know, and what did you want to know? You know, what did you want changed? And wow, I got some really great feedback from those sessions. And people saw me as, you know, they, they answered the further surveys with, he cares. He cares about what I think. And that's when I knew, you know, I'm starting to really do something really great here. Because yeah, people sure start answering the surveys. Yeah, because they see, you know, they see genuine care and, and authenticity. And, you know, and one of the keys to success is showing your authenticity you know, being open and honest and empathetic and, and being apologizing when you need to apologize, accepting your mistakes when you make them and freely admitting them. All those kinds of things show authenticity and people really, people really respond to that. Um, yeah, love that, Paul. Uh, again, uh, folks, the, the, the book is called Culture Change Through Environment Change. Uh, and we're talking with Paul Helinski. So Paul, before we get too much further, uh, uh, I want to talk, I want to just focus a little bit on psychological safety. Uh, I know that's, uh, something you feel strongly about. And, uh, so let's spend a few minutes, uh, talking about that. Yeah. I mean, it's a term that if you were to say it in a manufacturing environment, most people would be afraid. And they were when I brought it up, everyone laughed. They didn't know what it was. They thought, oh, you're just going to let everybody do whatever they want. So psychological safety is a term coined pretty much by Amy Edmondson, and she is a, a Harvard business professor. She wrote a book called The Fearless Organization. Um, and, you know, she's, she really talks about there's four levels to psychological safety. The first level is inclusive safety. So that is where everybody wants to feel like they're a part of something, right? So you know, modern, like modern day, it's teams, it's, you know, making sure that groups and, and parts of the organization are clustered so that it drives a team environment, right? Cave, caveman time, you, you had to trust each other because when you went to sleep, the woolly mammoth might come and you need to rely on the other person to wake everybody up. Right. So you had to be a part of a, a tribe or a team. Um, so that's the first level. Then as you progress through, the next level is learning safety. So statistically, people learn better in groups than a one-on-one -on -one basis. And it also helps to drive, you know, normalizing mistakes and everything. People learn better when they feel safe. So when they're inclusive, so the inclusive safety, and now they're learning together, they learn better. And so like what we do is we... Um, one of the things we implemented was an investment hour where we spend an hour training each week, right? And I always used to say, when I had to sell this idea, I used to say, if you had $100,000, you wouldn't put it in your, your savings account and expect to get rich. What would you do with it? You'd invest. 
So that's what we need to do with our people. We need to invest in them, train them, improve them, and it's paid dividends. So that's learner safety. The third level is contributing safety. So that's where everybody feels okay to share ideas. And the best way of doing this, and I bring about it, I bring it up in the book, but uh, Pixar, everybody's heard of Pixar and their rivalry with Disney. So Pixar has a thing they do, and it's called the Brain Trust. And it's a room in their building where uh, over top of the door, it says, you know, everyone's opinion matters. And when they go in there, there's a horizontal hierarchy. There is no management. There is no anybody. Everybody's opinion is equal. And they hash out ideas for movies in this room. It's the Brain Trust. So what I did was I, I basically leveraged that idea to tackle quality defects and safety defects um, and it's worked absolutely amazing so you get cross-functional group of everyone you know we have hourly people that are production workers we have engineers sitting in the meeting and every single opinion including my own are all the same there is no hierarchy in that room when we make decisions we make it as a group not as a unilateral decision and what I've seen is so much engagement in and out of that room and people contribute. People feel free to contribute. And as a leader, you gotta, I will tell you one story on this. As a leader, you have to set the tone. So I had one engineer that was over talking uh, a female hourly worker. Every time that she went to raise an idea, he would over talk her. I actually ejected him from the meeting and made him attend the meeting over Zoom so that I could mute him if needed. <laughs> and what that did was yeah. the very next meeting after that word got out, I had 10 female workers that came up and actually wanted to be a part of this meeting. Yes. And I have gotten mm -hmm. amazing ideas, amazing feedback, different viewpoints that I would have never even seen from this yeah. one meeting. So it's unbelievable. And then the, yeah. the fourth level is the hardest, and that's challenge safety. And Bill Clinton probably said this best when he got into office, he pulled his cabinet together and said, you have the power to disagree. If you're not going to disagree with me, I might as well fire you and hire computers. But you're here to disagree with me. And uh, and that's what I do. You know, as a leader too, you have to set the tone with that. If somebody disagrees with you or challenges you, you cannot negatively react. You have to be like, okay, I see your point. And then explain why you made the decision or take it under further consideration. And what happens is leaders have blind spots. We can't see everything. We're, we are not infallible. We're human beings. And in a business, what you have to realize and what everybody real, should realize, everyone in that business is important. It's like a jigsaw puzzle. Everyone is a different piece. But without that piece, the puzzle can't be finished. And yes, I might have a different piece than the worker on the floor building the part. But my piece is just as important as their piece. And I might not see how they view something I'm about to do. So giving people the freedom to say, you know what, I don't think that's a good idea. I, th and then here's why. And then reacting to them as, you know what, 
that's a good point. I never thought of that. Let me think about it some more. Or, or yeah. hey, this is why I'm going to make the decision. Perfect example I had of this. I was trying to team, build team morale. And uh, so I was going to start a like luncheon for the new employees because we were struggling with turnover, trying to get new employees in. So I was going to schedule a luncheon with the new employees and their trainers. And one of the one of the young ladies who isn't a trainer and not a new employee said, you might want to rethink that because you're really going to make everyone else who doesn't train upset. And I thought, I'm giving free lunch out. How could I make people upset? And she said, well, there those people are trying their heart out and they might be upset. You might want to think about it. And I thought to my, after I thought about it, I was like, She's right, because we don't have an incentive plan for those people who are just individual contributors doing a great job. So what if I did both and started both? And it worked out perfect, but I would have never seen that side had she not felt comfortable. Now here's a, she's relatively new. She's been at the company for three years and she's questioning the business leader. And I thought to myself, I got this. We're good now. Yeah. This is exactly the environment I want. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, absolutely. It's beautiful because, you know, and, and I, I, I say this all the time. Everybody who's affected by a decision should have some say in that decision. Absolutely. Right. And you would never know, you know, you know, if, you know, if you didn't include you know, the clerk and, you know, the, 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 you know, the dock folks, the receiving crew or, or, you know, the shipping people or the account people, you know, anybody who's affected by that should be in the room mm -hmm. and, and everybody should have a say. And, and you, you're absolutely right, Paul, you never know what somebody's going to say. And you're going to go, wait, good thing I didn't make this all by myself. Yeah. Because I would have never got that. I would have never got that. And it's beautiful when it happens and it and it builds morale. The team feels engaged. They feel buy-in. They feel like what they say means something to somebody, that I was heard, my ideas were considered, all those things. You, you yep. know, you're you're hitting you're hitting on all those. And it really, you know, and, and no wonder your team is is having such great success. It's really awesome to hear. Uh Love it, Paul. I love everything you're saying. I, I, I love the book, Culture Change Through Environment Change. Um, you know, you can get that on Amazon and anywhere books are sold, right, Paul? Yep. Uh, any any final thoughts before we move, before yeah. we head out? Uh, just one, one thing to say to the leaders that are listening. Um, you know, the last chapter of the book uh, talks about be the leader that you wanted. So we, we as leaders, we've seen so many good and bad leaders and so many people nowadays, they're complaining about the leaders that they have and then they become leaders. And I think we need to be brave. We need to be the, the change agent. We can change the work environments now. We are the leaders of today. And if we're brave enough, we can reshape a future for tomorrow. And we've already learned tonight, you know, that we control a large portion of our well-being, the well-being of our people. We can change their lives and then we can change the lives of their families, which if you do that enough, you put enough good into the world, it'll give you a good back.
So I think the last thing, you know, just to tell the leaders, be brave. When people tell you it's not going to work, don't believe them. Keep having a vision. Keep being brave. Keep trying it. Because in the end, human capital and, and the humans that work for us, they're all, the, they're all that matter. They are the reason why we are there as leaders. And if quicker we remember that, the better we'll all change this world. Agreed. Very well said. Very well said. I appreciate everything, Paul. It's not about us anymore, right? Yep. It's it's about it's about building more leaders. And I definitely think you're on to something. Love to have you back sometime. I feel like we could talk for another two hours. Absolutely. Really uh, this do. has been amazing. Thank you. I appreciate your time tonight. Thanks so much for being with us. Uh, and everybody, again, culture change through environment change. Paul Hylensky. Paul, thanks so much. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. Uh, on the first ever episode of Talking Leadership with Dan Mulroney. Thanks so much.